Let's pray together for the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Will you open our ears and our eyes to understand what you are speaking to your church today through the word? Amen. So you know those songs that they play in locker rooms before sporting events? I think they're called pump-up songs. This is kind of foreign to me. I'm not really that sporty. Um, but I think that these are the same kind of songs that runners listen to as they train or exercise, the ones in the headphones. And I, I think these are the same kind of songs that uh, political candidates have playing when they jump up on the stage for a stump speech. These songs inspire. Let's get it started. I'm not going to sing any. They, they build up confidence. We are the champions, my friends. We will rock you. They get you ready to fight, to fight the opposing team, to fight your own fatigue, that ache in your muscles, so you can finish the last half mile, the, the trembling in your biceps as you add 10 more pounds. I don't think it's possible to listen to a pump-up song and lay on the couch for long. <laughs> you're you're gonna, either going to get up and turn it off, or you're going to get up and exercise, right? And, and even though I'm not a sporty person, and this is an unusual kind of sermon illustration for me to use, I will tell you that one particular pump-up song really helped me in eighth grade when I was preparing for a piano competition. It was, I have confidence from the sound of music. <laughs> and I won. So um, I think maybe pump-up songs kind of work. And this is what we hear today in the triumphal entry. We hear a pump-up song. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. People are waving palm branches, and they're putting their cloaks on the ground. And this time we're going to win, so let's pull out that old victory march from Psalm 118. That's what they're singing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and glory in the highest. And this is a reference to the psalm, but we can imagine they sang the whole thing, right? And if you read the whole psalm in 118, you read about a winner, one who cuts down nations as they surround him, and the one where the hand of the Lord does mighty things. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. Victory! This is the song the pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem. This hymn of praise to God who defeats his foes and establishes his kingdom. And this time, to those who are waving the branches and singing the psalm, it's Jesus who's going to win. This is the pregame parade. This is the pump-up song. We're going to win. We're going to do it. Have you ever felt like this? Kind of on the cusp of winning? It's a great feeling. But what if you feel like you're about to win, and you go out to play the game? You're all ready. Your uniform's on, high fives all around. But the game isn't what you thought it was. What if someone changed the rules and they didn't tell you until you fouled out? What if the field had new measurements and the lines were in different places? What if the soccer goal got smaller? What then? What happens when they change the rules? 
And this is what's happening in today's sermon's text. The disciples are ready to play the game. They're ready to win. And Jesus says, hold on. This game isn't what you think it is. Maybe the disciples have missed the point. I mean, there's been a lot of clues in the Gospel of Luke that this time the game is different. But the disciples are kind of dense. I mean, at least they seem so to us because we've read the whole story and they're living it. They haven't. I I don't want to sound judgy. I don't think we would be that different if we were in their place. But there are some clues in the Gospel of Luke that the game has changed. And we've been looking at some of those clues during this season of Lent. We've been sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to how this game has changed. We've been sitting at the feet of Jesus with people who don't have the confidence of a pump-up song. We've been sitting there with, with women and lepers and widows, with people on the outside in that culture. We've heard Jesus say, there is need for only one thing, as Mary sits at his feet learning. And when the man with leprosy falls to the ground in front of Jesus, Jesus says, be made clean. And when the sinful woman enters the Pharisee's house and takes her hair down and does all this stuff with her hair and her perfume, and it's very uncomfortable, and the Pharisee judges her in his mind, Jesus says, do you see this woman? To the widow whose only son, whose only son is dead, Jesus says, do not weep. And then he raises the son from the dead. And to the leper who comes back to thank Jesus for healing him, Jesus says, rise and go. All these stories have a similar theme. And it's a theme of Jesus interacting with losers, people on the outside, a woman who wants to learn for a century, (laughs) a man with leprosy, a prostitute, a widow with one son and he's dead. And another leper who's also a Samaritan. None of these people are winners. They're not even losers. They're they're not even the people that people root against. Nobody notices them. They're kind of invisible. But Jesus notices them, and he sees them, and he looks at them, and he speaks with them. And sometimes he even reaches out his hand and touches them. Now, there is a song in Luke's gospel but it's not a pump-up song. It's the theme song of Luke's gospel. In chapter 1, Mary sings it. Mary sings about how God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And so here we are, chapter 22 It's Passover, it's game night, and Jesus here is like the coach getting the players ready for the big game, but the rules have changed, and a little tiff breaks out among the players. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the MVP for the kingdom of God? Who gets to hold the trophy in the picture? Who's the winner? And Jesus cuts in. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That's easy to understand, right? I mean, it it was easy for the disciples to understand, but we're not really from the first century. But this is what Jesus is talking about. Way back a long time ago, it was the wealthy who would serve as the philanthropist of towns and cities. And they'd contribute money as and where they desired 
And because of this, they didn't have to pay taxes. And so also because of this, the city coffers were constantly weak. And this was to the wealthy's advantage. And because of their act of donating time and money, they were seen by others as generous, as people who deserved public office and the prestige that went with it. And, and so in other words, in order to be a leader, one needed to be rich. And this was the pattern for those who gave generously. And it was a pattern that covered the Roman world during the time of Christ. And Jesus is not saying that people abuse the system. He's critiquing the system itself. The kings of the Gentiles rule it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Now, this does not mean that the disciples are not to be rulers or benefactors, but it means that their rule is different. They should not rule in a way that's about the power they're going to accumulate. They should rule in a way that is not about status or prestige or privilege. They are to be transformed, giving without the expectation of receiving. Leadership in the Jesus community is not about status or honor or winning or success, but it's about reflecting the humility of the servant at the table, the, the humility of the youngest child, the one who wouldn't receive an inheritance. And so Jesus is calling his disciples in an upside-down way. They are not to lead because they're the ones with prestige and wealth and power. They're to be like the youngest. The one who rules is to be like the one who serves. They are to be leaders with character that has been transformed from the one who takes the best seat to the one who's like a server who fills up your water, who brings you more bread, who washes your dirty feet, who cleans the latrines. And then Jesus says he confers on them a kingdom. Grant or appoint is another way the word confer is translated. I confer on you a kingdom, just like my father conferred one on me. Now, this is paradoxical. Jesus had just told them they're not to be like the benefactors, and here they are receiving a kingdom. But this kingdom is not theirs. It's Jesus. It's Jesus' kingdom because Jesus is the king. Jesus was named the king in this procession, and now he claims it. It's his kingdom, and they're to take part in it. They're to participate in it. And Jesus is telling them that they are going to participate in, in it as leaders. You are those who have stood beside me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is quite a promise. But... You might be asking, huh? He just said they were to be like servants, and now they're sitting on thrones judging. Some of this is language from the Old Testament. Like the judges led God's people in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, the judges went before the kings, so too will the disciples lead. And we'll see this in the book of Acts. Jesus is giving a tiny little sketch of the coming kingdom. But they're not there yet. The game isn't over. A lot more has to happen before it's realized. And I think that even as Jesus teaches them about who is the greatest, he is acknowledging his own call. Because the one who is the greatest, who sits at this table, is Jesus. But he is about to become the one who is the least, the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And that's the action that Jesus is going to take this week. The action of one who serves. The action of a guilty slave. Jesus, who is God incarnate, fully God and fully human, he's going to be betrayed by a friend. He will be arrested and tried in a kangaroo court. Peter will deny even knowing him. Jesus will be beaten within an inch of his life. He'll be mocked. He'll be crucified between two criminals with spikes through his wrists and ankles. And he'll even be mocked while he's dying by one of the criminals crucified next to him. Jesus will breathe his last and he'll die of asphyxiation. And then something happens while Jesus is dead. We don't understand the mystery of this. And there's very little written about it in scripture. But Jesus continues the action of God that began long ago. And this is the action of God descending down toward us. God has always postured himself downward toward us, even before the fall, walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, wrestling with Jacob, descending as the pillar of fire into the tabernacle and later into Solomon's temple. And then God descends again in Jesus, the man who is God. And there at the cross, humiliated and scorned as he was, Jesus descended once more past us deeper than our failures and sin and shame into the pit of hell itself. And something happens there. And the Bible does say very little about this, and we're not focusing on those passages today. But we can say that the one who was greatest, Jesus, became the one who was least. He should have lost, you know? I mean, according to our rules, this is how you lose. It's like a player mid-game saying to the opposing team, hey, take the ball, I've had it for a while, it's your turn. Or an Olympic runner slowing down and letting the other athletes pass her. No thanks, I think I'll just walk this last half mile. Or the boxer, you've you've had the last three punches? Go ahead, take another one right here. This is loser talk. And this week, this week is the week that Jesus loses. But Jesus loses for us. Jesus loses for us losers. There's an old Christian song from the 1990s by Steve Taylor, and it's called Jesus is for Losers. And it is not a pump-up song, in case you wondered. One of the verses says, just as I am, pass the compass, please. Jesus is for losers. I'm off about 100 degrees. Just as I am, I am needy and dry. Jesus is for losers. The self-made need not apply. And this is what we've seen in Luke. Jesus is for losers, for the youngest and the slowest and the sickest and the deadest and the thirstiest and the most defeated, the ones who might feel like a broken down bronco left in a field to rust. This was a reference from Pastor Colby last week. The ones who say, loser, failure, regrets here, depressed, bankrupt, addicted, lonely. That's who Jesus came for. When I was a little girl, my father was a pastor, and we lived in the parsonage, and it was a different kind of parsonage than what we have at Hinsdale because it was actually part of the church building itself. You might imagine this was 
tough for my mom. It was a house that had been converted into a church. And I would frequently play in the nursery with the toys that people had donated. One, one day, someone donated two old dolls, and I would play with them. Uh, I named one Marsha because my aunt had a friend named Marsha. She always talked about. So there was Marsha. And then I named the other one Marshmallow because Marsha and Marshmallow go together, if you didn't know that. It's true. And, and I remember playing with Marsha and Marshmallow quite a lot. And one day, my mom decided that she would allow me to keep one of the dolls as my own. I, I don't know, maybe she was the toy steward of the nursery. But she said I could keep one. And I remember looking at these two dolls. And, and Marcia had frizzy, clumpy, matted hair and some permanent red marks on her skin. And she just looked really well-loved and kind of bad. And Marshmallow was in much better condition. She had smooth, blonde, curly hair. And, and she was quite lovely. And I remember thinking that if I chose Marshmallow, no one was going to want to play with Marsha in the nursery. So I chose Marsha. Despite my firstborn selfish tendencies, I chose the weird doll. And I loved her. And my mom sewed her clothes. And I tried to get that red mark off her skin. And I still can't, because I've moved around a lot in my life, like six states in a province. And I've kept Marsha. Because I can't get rid of her. She's moved with me to all these states, and, and she reminds me of, of what it feels like to have a tender heart and to recognize that the kingdom of God is not a beauty competition or a game with rules we always understand. The kingdom of God is sung about by a poor teenager, and it's experienced by the sick, people with weird skin, <laughs> the widows, the prostitutes, the outcast, and, and ones with really, really bad hair. And I think if we're honest, we're all kind of like Marsha, inside at least. We're not Marshmallow. I mean, this is Hinsdale, and a lot of us might look or feel like Marshmallow on the outside. But we're Marsha, and we're the ones Jesus came for. Jesus is for losers, for losers on the outside and losers on the inside. For those who might look successful on the outside, but inwardly know that inside it's a, a house of cards that's going to topple. And the work of God this week, this holy, holy, holy week, is not simply because Jesus is God and Almighty King, but also because Jesus is a loser. Jesus lost in ways none of us can ever lose. Jesus went from the highest, from sitting at the right hand of God Almighty to coming down, taking on the form of a slave, and then going further down, further than you and I could ever go into the events of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And all of us, all of us losers are invited to follow the greatest loser. We can follow this loser to the foot of the cross. And this is not exciting. This is not the work for winners. We're not going to play pump-up songs and give high fives because this isn't a game. This is life and death. And then it's life again, and life again, and again, and life again, and life again. And if I spoke truthfully, I would just keep on saying this over and over again, and we would never finish. Life again. Who's the greatest? Jesus. Who is the least? Jesus.
And this is the call for us to follow Jesus this week, to follow him to the cross. The greatest among us is becoming the least among us. Let us follow. Let's pray together. Spirit, show us how to follow Jesus this week and after. Empower us to do your calling, to recognize the call of Jesus, what it means to be the least, and what it means to serve just like you served. We pray in your name. Amen. As a response, I invite us to say the Apostles' Creed together. The Apostles' Creed affirms some of the things that were in the teaching this morning. So I invite you to stand, and the words will be up on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.